Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With five minutes to chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. Hello, everybody. Steve Kerr here, your host of Five Minutes to Chaos, an unrehearsed, unscripted podcast with the goal of promoting crisis management through the raw experiences and observations of emergency managers, crisis leaders, and incident commanders that have led their teams through complex and challenging situations. Yet another special guest with us today. As I've mentioned uh, in previous podcasts, I believe the emergency management profession exists in many different uh, corners of society, of um, uh, of industry, and uh, in many different professions. Sean Friedman is uh, a colleague that represents emergency management, crisis management, business continuity in the in the financial sector. I I did a, a fleeting moment uh, doing emergency management in the financial sector. Uh, contract about 15 years ago with the World Bank as part of a team that developed a global crisis management plan. Uh, it was it was interesting, Sean, because we had uh, to develop a, a local crisis management capability to the Washington, D.C. metro area, which is where the World Bank headquarters is. And the World Bank itself is a very interesting organization. You walk into the buildings and you are, it's not quite like an embassy, but you are uh, not subject to U- U.S. norms and customs. There are people, for example, not a big deal, but and during the lunch hour, the uh, folks from Europe would drink, and there were, you know, there was alcohol available in the commissary, but not to Americans. It was available, and and there was smoking sections, different, just, just different cultures. Anyway, um, 130 country offices, three major data centers. I believe it was D.C., Paris, and somewhere in India. And so uh, th- that that's my – and actually, we, we had a really major exercise, and we actually dealt with, while we were on site, uh, a major incident uh, that, that maybe major is too, too big a stretch. But we had a, a power outage uh, caused by, I believe, a transformer popped from local utility bank went uh, out – uh, power outage is 19 buildings out of power and so you know we help we helped them along with that but this is uh, uh my my brief exposure to did some stuff with the sec a few years ago but anyway sean thank you for um uh, uh, wanting to be on the show and for coming to tell us your story welcome to the show tell us about your background thank you um like you'd mentioned i basically spent all my career in banking I've been involved in business continuity for a little over 25 years. And for most people in the corporate world who've been it as long as I have, my introduction to it was being voluntold. 
congratulations, you are now in charge of business continuity. Of course, back then, the focus was more on disaster recovery. How can we recover the data centers, make sure that the systems are being brought up? And there wasn't as much of a focus on people recovery and facilities. It was there, but it was sort of more back of mind until 9-11. I knew you were going to say that, yeah. And then the focus started changing to say, yes, we need our data centers recovered. Um, But also they started realizing we need to have a lot more distance between them in case something happens to one, the other's not impacted. But also how are we going to recover people, processes, backup locations, facilities? Um, What are our different options? Because back then there really wasn't remote work like it is today. It was very limited. Most people didn't have high speed internet connectivity. It was your phone line. So you really couldn't do a lot of work or heavy duty work remote. So it was making sure that you had your recovery facilities set up. Can you access everything you need from them? What do you have in place? Um, trying to develop work transfer. So if I've got three offices, can I transfer work from office A to office B, making sure that everybody is aware of what is needed? So it started to change how people looked at doing things. Um, imaging became so, so a lot you, uh, more important during this time Sean uh for the for the for the audience you're New York centric yes so the 9-11 incident has sort of a, a bigger implication to you because it's not just you're in a distant place and now you're just trying to do recovery and build a program you're you're in the you're in the thick of it correct I was at Midtown 33rd and 10th just down the block from Madison Square Garden, and actually saw the first plane fly down the center of Manhattan shortly before it hit. Well, being on the west side, you would have 10th Avenue. Uh, yeah, I yeah, I totally get that. Yep. If you see the images of uh, the FDNY battalion chief, this was just you know totally un- unscripted. Uh, FDNY battalion chief at the scene of a gas leak and uh, he happened to have a French media team with him. That aircraft goes right over her head. That was in the extreme west side, obviously. So that would have had to have come over your location at the time. Yeah. And actually, the guy who was sitting next to me looked, he says, doesn't that plane seem awfully low? And I'm like, yeah. So when the news was saying a plane had hit and they were like, well, we think it might be a small commuter plane. We were like, no, it had to have been the jet that we had just seen shortly beforehand. Right. So so let's back up a little bit. This is a common theme. Many uh, guests on the podcast, and of course, through my professional uh, you know, career, I've, I've encountered a situation that you're describing. People just sort of fell into it. Uh, you know, I had a, a podcast, one of the episodes recently, just a couple of weeks ago, women in emergency management, uh, Andrea Davis, uh, uh, I mean, senior career 
now crisis manager, emergency management professional, talks about falling into it in the 90s, late 90s. Um, guess what? Around Y2K. And, and you know, she sort of fell into it. And she built a career. I say this because it's important to know that there are really great opportunities in our world. So she, she, she started... Uh, you know, doing uh, emergency planning around Y2K and ended up as global crisis management director at both Disney Corporation and Walmart. So I think there's, there's there, you know, there's great opportunity there. Let's go back to New York, uh, painting a picture for, um, uh, let's say the late 90s. Uh, you and I crossed paths, although we probably didn't know we were sitting next to each other at an organization called the Contingency Planning Exchange. Could you describe what that what that what that was or is, how it functioned, what its what its mission was, what impact that had on the uh I'll say sure. the I'll say the crisis management community for now. Yep. I think we may, I might have been there a little after you were, but basically it was an organization where you had representatives predominantly financial but a number of other industries as well we met about four or five times a year and we would have various speakers on different topics related to emergency management and business continuity and we would have potentially someone from the fbi who was speaking about active shooter we would have someone who might be talking about cyber resilience and dealing with cyber attacks um dealing with weather events. So we might have someone from like the city of emergency management who would be coming in and make a presentation to us. Or in one case, we actually went to their office and had the meeting there and they gave us a tour of the facility in Brooklyn. That's that's definitely after my time because I, yeah. I left OEM in, uh, in 2000. Um, but I do remember presenting, as you say, OEM, uh, emergency management, other uh, professions presented. And I remember the whole, you know, black suit and tie thing that uh, uh, we, you know, here we are sitting on Zoom, essentially doing something very similar, or, you know, we could have this, that meeting could today be on Zoom. But back in the day, it was a fairly formal and a very respectable environment. And uh, I remember presenting maybe twice. And I appreciated that opportunity because I, I thought the group was, um, had real value. Definitely, because in addition to the speakers, we would then usually have a panel discussion at each of the meetings um, where it would be a combination of just the general participants asking questions or some of the people on the panel raising topics for the audience to sort of opine on. So this way you could get a different point of view on how things were being handled at the different institutions. And the other thing which I thought was critical to it all was networking, because it allowed you to meet people at different organizations who might be doing something similar to you or completely different organ, um, industry and bounce ideas off of each other. Because in a lot of firms, like for me, I'm a one-man band. Um, and at a number of the companies, especially the smaller banks, I'm it for, it was for business continuity. So it would be good to meet these other people so you'd have someone else in the industry where you could just sort of say, 
I'm thinking of X. How does this sound to you? Um, and then get some feedback to say, oh, no, that sounds good. Or you may want to tweak this or that. Or have you considered what have you? So this way, you're not just talking to yourself. And you can get some feedback from people who are in the industry, who are dealing with it. Um, so that was very key. And it was also helpful because during certain events, you would then have, and what you refer to as Rolodex management, someone else I that. could Thank reach you. out to at another bank to say, this event is happening. What are you doing? And while they wouldn't, we wouldn't necessarily share all the nitty gritty details because some of that was proprietary, but to say, yes, we are considering closing the branches or no, we're going to keep them open, but we're making these modifications. So this way, you sort of got that feedback. And then when you would go to present to senior management, I could say, well, I've spoken to someone at JP Morgan or at Bank of New York or at City or wherever. And this is what they are also doing. So it would add a little more weight to it then. Well, here's just what I think, but here are what these four other institutions are also doing. Isn't that, isn't that emergency management, crisis management at its core, at its most elemental level, bringing people together, sharing uh, situational awareness, sharing um, philosophies and concepts and the ability to have a colleague to tap on the shoulder and say, hey, what do you think? Isn't that emergency management at its core? Absolutely. You need to be able to have that those other people to work with um, because you can't do this job alone. You need to, even within your own firm, you need to make sure that you are aware of who are all the different department heads? Who are the decision makers? And the way I view it, there are two levels of decision makers. You have the person on the org chart, and then you've got the person who's like potentially really making, these are the day-to-day -day decisions, this is what needs to be done, who that person on the org chart may actually be going to. So you sort of need to know the various levels um, so when something does happen, you know, who do I need to speak to? Who do I need to call to say, this is what's happening? Are you prepared? Um, I would have my checklists and I'm a big proponent of playbooks. And I've got them for all sorts of different topics, sort of giving those references as to these are the departments. These are the things I want to make sure are being taken care of that they're aware of, that they're thinking of, because I do my day-to-day -day job in the wire room. So I know I just do these 12 things. But if there's a potential storm coming up, it's like, okay, guys, you now need to think about these three other things, making sure that they are aware of it and that they've started to think through and to say, okay, how are we going to deal with X because of this potential storm, which could either A, mean I can't work out of the office, or B, I may have to do this with reduced staffing. So what are the things that I need to be thinking about now 
when it happens as opposed to, okay, the storm hit, you're now down 10 to 15% of your staff. Now let's start thinking about what to be doing. It's like, no, we want to think about that now in the quote unquote blue sky days versus right when you're in the thick of it. I think we do more work during blue sky than we do during gray sky. I mean, part yep. of that is to prevent gray sky, right? So blue sky uh, could be called steady state between incidents. And th and that's what we are busy uh, as, as emergency managers, doing preparedness, doing risk assessments, doing training, doing exercises. It's an ongoing cycle of, of work that we do. We don't activate for gray sky as often, but when we do, that's our opportunity to shine and bring our programs to the, to the fore so people can see how they work. Silo management is absolutely another core emergency management responsibility. Thank you so much for bringing up Rolodex management. Uh, I talk about it in almost every episode. And of course, today, Rolodexes are sort of uh, archaic, but my Rolodex exists in my phone. And a little emergency management life hack is tag your contacts so you can search for them. Because I may not remember the name of the guy that runs business continuity at Apple Bank, Oh, Sean something or other. But if I type in finance, Apple or banking, Sean's name will come up and, the, and then we know each other. And, you know, when I was the emergency management uh, head at a, at a utility in Colorado, I would certainly hope people did that. What was the name of that guy, Steve something? Oh, utilities or electric, uh, you know, energy, something like that. It's a silly life hack. Um, so breaking down silos. That, again, exists in all corners of emergency management. I spoke about this with Bruce McIndoe the other day. We are talking about, on one of the episodes, how he, he works with major corporations and, and bringing people together. There are people in, in, in these silos that don't work together often. They don't work together frequently. And there shouldn't have to be a crisis for these silos to come together. So there's opportunities to do... Even low intensity discussions, you know, get somebody in the room from each of these silos and say, you know, 15 minute discussion. Okay, there's been a transformer explosion up the block. Conrad is telling us we're we're possibly we have we run the possibility of losing power. What's our strategy? What's our what 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 functions need to come offline right now so we don't lose uh, lose production? So something like that, and uh, you can gain a lot of value with that in the public side my silos as a as a public sector emergency manager were the agencies police fire ems public health healthcare transportation aviation rail uh and utilities water wastewater energy gas electric those are the it's really the same job that we do and i really appreciate you you um bringing this stuff up you know Chris Malliard is the uh, emergency management director for Hospital Network in uh, in Boulder, Colorado. And on, <clears throat> Chris tells us a story about the Marshall Fire, which was a, a destructive, catastrophic wildfire in Colorado a couple of years ago. And as the uh, as the wildfire is approaching, two of his hospitals, because he's he has a network of hospitals, it's that. It's that sort of, if you will, that purgatory period between Christmas and New Year, and not everybody's around. So when you talk about 
uh, knowing who the decision maker is and then knowing who the doer is, the person that the decision maker goes to to get stuff done. Well, guess what? Many of them were not around. And now we have an emergency management director of a hospital network that's left to make decisions uh, without the opportunity of, you know, technically running them up a flagpole. So, at, again, just knowing those people. So, you know, you you do the old um, I'll ask for, for forgiveness later thing if, if lives are at stake. And this was that situation. The fire was approaching occupied hospitals with, sent, with bed senses. These uh, hospitals need to be evacuated. So Chris, Chris makes the call. He gets uh, other folks engaged. You know, they activate a, a command center EMS for the movement of the, of the patients, and you get it. And what you what do you do is you just get it done, and and that, and that I think I think that's what you're talking about. It is. And I mean, one of the things I like to do because one of the big tests I do are tabletop exercises. Right. And what I like to do is I like to have the senior managers there, and what I sort of refer to as the worker bees, and present the scenario, and then it says, okay, we've got this scenario, this is happening, what are we gonna do? Senior management says, we're gonna do X. And I'm like, okay. Then I'll look at the worker bee and I say, okay, how are you going to do that? And in some cases they're like, well, it's not that easy and we'll have to maybe do this. And in some cases the senior manager's like, what do you mean you can't do that? It's like, yeah, it sounded good on paper, but now it's really, talk it through and understand, or what I've done, and I did this especially when I would do the pandemic tabletops, is senior managers were out sick. So it's like when at that point during the exercise, they just had to sit there quietly. They could not speak up and make any decisions. So it would be like the lower level people saying, okay, your manager's out of the picture. What are you going to do? And in some cases, some of them were like, I don't know. It's like, well, you got to make a decision, think it through. Um, and others, they were sort of like, okay, here's what we're going to do. And it's like the only reason they were quiet the entire time is because their senior manager was like, I am it. I make all decisions. No one else can speak. So it's like, no, I'm taking you out of the picture. Let's see what will happen if you're not around, because like you said, with your example, people are out on vacation or they could be out ill or whatever, and they're not there. So it's like, what are you going to do if your boss is in here and I'm coming to you to make a decision? You got to figure out what are your next steps? And part of that is where planning comes in to sort of say, okay, Look at your plan. Have you considered this situation? Um, in all of the plans that I develop and will be doing so at my new firm is to sort of say, here are five scenarios. Tell me if you have a reduction of staff, loss of facility, whatever, what are the processes you're gonna prioritize? And what are the processes that you are potentially gonna put on hold or modify? because you have a reduction in staff or whatever. Think about that now. So when it comes time for an event and you've got to make that decision, you're not necessarily staring at a blank piece of paper. You're looking at your plan and it says, okay, we are the wire room. You know what? We're going to focus on all wires greater than $10 million if I have a reduction in staff 
Anything less than that's going to become best efforts. But this way, they've already made that decision as to what is that lim dollar limit that they're going to focus on. Or they're going to say, we're going to focus on these types of closings versus others, because these we've got a regulatory requirement that it must take place within three days, where these we've got eight days. So I want them thinking about that and trying to make these decisions now, making sure it's documented. So yeah, if the senior manager is not there, we have some guidance in place where they could think about it now as opposed to when it hits the fan and the fire and flames are all around us, in which case sometimes panic starts to settle in if people are not familiar with operating in that type of environment. I knew this was going to be a great discussion. There's so much to unpack there. Uh, I just want to make passing note to uh, assumption management. You spoke about uh, the assumptions that senior leaders have and then going down to the more tactical level and what the worker bees can actually do. And I mean, how many times have we seen that as as uh, emergency managers, continuity professionals where assumptions are made? There is a disconnect, uh, even within the individual silo between leadership and perhaps the doer. Uh, and that and that is certainly uh, a big takeaway, for, I, I, th I think, for this episode. You know, we like every episode to produce, you know, learning um, learning nuggets. You know, nobody really likes the word lesson learned, but, I mean, that's really what we're talking about. But, you know, some nuggets. And, you know, any, any senior leaders listening to this on the production line or somewhere in an organization should should think about what their assumptions might be during during an incident. Could you also talk about playbooks? Because that is an emerging philosophy that I certainly espouse. Um, I've I've not written any. I have a structure, a construct for one that has five sections. But my philosophy is that uh, during an incident, uh, and I'm talking public sector. I'm sure the the uh, private sector has something similar. Nobody is going to have the time or a capability to thumb through a 75 pound paper plan, uh, typically called in the public sector, an emergency operations plan, EOP. They used to be called CEMPs, comprehensive emergency management plans. The construct is, is, is essentially the same. And the, the structure of this is driven by FEMA guidance, uh, Comprehensive Preparedness Guide, CPG 101. So I, I'm curious as, as to the playbooks. Um, how were they developed? Who's involved in the development of them? And and what do they look like? The way I design mine is I'll have an event, let's say a hurricane. And I'll have multiple phases in it. First one is starting, let's say, at five days out, then three days, then two days, then one day, then during the event, then post-event. And within each of those sections, I've got the department level um, and identify at a high level, what are we looking for them to do during that point in time? Um, what preparation they need to do? What notifications do they need to do? So this way, as we're going through, we can sort of take a look and it's not telling me in nitty gritty detail what needs to be done, but it's just saying, okay, we've got a hurricane coming. What well, looks like we may need to close the branches. 
okay, there's a line, notify regulators. Well, who, and that's, let's say, could be under either legal or compliance, depending who is responsible for that. Because if a branch is closed on a, what's supposed to be a working day, the regulators need to be notified. That department should have their procedures for exactly how they notify the regulators and who has to be told and how and what have you. But it just sort of gives these high level bullet points to sort of say, this is what these groups need to be doing at this point in time of the event. So, like I said, like I said, no one's going to be reading the 75 pound document, but it gives us these high level things which we can look at. And typically how it's been de designed is I'll usually do a first pass based on experience and conversations I've had. And then it goes out to the business for those people in the different areas to review and sort of say, you know what, we need to add this or no, this team does that. And I've had a few people say, well, we don't do this anymore. Everyone's working remote. We can remove some of these lines. I'm like, nope, we're going to keep them. And they're why? I'm like, well, how many companies out there are now saying they want all staff back in the office full time? We don't know when this event's going to occur, and we don't know what the rules are going to be when that happens. So I would rather have it, and I'd say, fine, you know what? If everybody's still doing hybrid, we can skip this step. But if everybody's in the office, no, we're going to need that step to say, make sure everyone tests their remote access. Little things of that nature. And then in the appendix is where I'll have potentially checklists that we may give out to the staff to say, for hurricane, here's a checklist of preparedness for like what should be in a go bag or things you should consider or some drafts of notifications that would go out to both staff or to our customer base. Um, general guidance, um, contact information. These are the websites for the different OEM offices in the area and for public transportation. So this way, if I'm sending something out, I can just sort of copy and paste that into the email that's going out. So staff know, here's where I can get information from a trusted source. Because unfortunately, nowadays, I'm going to go to Facebook and Twitter, and they're going to tell me everything I need to know. And it's like, yeah, not so much. Well, you know, that that is a problem that is, is surfacing. And I don't think it's a new problem, how we communicate with a younger workforce. You know, the uh, social media, Twitter is even probably not where our younger workforce is uh, residing these days. They're probably more on TikTok and Instagram. Yep. You know, Facebook is now for, you know, the uh, the old, you know, gray haired crowd. And, you know, certainly I'm going to include you. And me. Hey, by the way, it's not lost on me that you have a gray sky as your backdrop and you're uh, right here on, on your uh, your LinkedIn backdrop. So I, I get it. Nice, cloudy day there. And I think that I think that makes a, a, a big statement. I really like what you're talking about with the playbooks. I, I think that is is actionable. I think mm -hmm. you now have a document that's easy to read, easy to reference, uh, and that has actionable content that people can um, 
thumb through in an easy manner and get to what they yep. need uh, and 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 be able to to take immediate uh, action, emergency protective measures, uh, life-saving issues, and you know business main you know business continuity strategies and, and and stuff like that. Sounds like it could be a bit of a task to maintain these things if you have a lot of them. Uh, yes and no. Um, there's certain things which carries through. So, like I have my one I call natural disasters. So a lot of the steps that I would take for a snowstorm or a hurricane are similar. So they're potentially in the same section. And then I may have a little line that says for snowstorms you're going to do X, for a hurricane you're going to do Y. But helping maintain them also make sure I'm staying on top of things. Um, keeps me thinking about it. Um, and some of these playbooks I've designed, I look at my current company, I'm never going to use because I'm never going to have to worry about doing a country evacuation. But they're mental exercises that gets me thinking about different subjects. And as I'm developing one for, let's say, a country evacuation, it's like, you know what? This is a good thought. Let me bring that over to this other playbook, this other event, which I may not have thought about or didn't consider. Um, one of the ones, I think it was on one of your podcasts prior when they were talking about um, food. Okay, we've got like Orthodox and Muslims. Okay, so what type of food are we going to get? So it's Tom like Fargion, yeah, Tom Fargione talked about the this the uh, the way you bring cultures together to achieve a yep. common mission. Yeah. So in the document, I, in one of the documents I have, um, where I'm talking about if we're bringing food in for the staff to sort of say, there's a line in there to say, check out, make sure we're considering dietary restrictions. So it's like little things like that come into play. So. As you're doing it, it's not like a fine, I'll just go out to the corner store and just say, send me 45 sandwiches. It's like, well, no, we got to take this into consideration. Otherwise, we're going to have 10% of our staff aren't going to have anything to eat or drink. So it's like, okay, good. Make these little tweaks to the documents. And that's why I listen to your of this five minutes to chaos um there are a number of different other ones that are out there that i listen to for the interviews and the different webinars because like you were saying before the little nugget yes it may be an hour presentation but if i get one or two key thoughts from it it's like great this is how i can enhance my documentation and strengthen my program so with if something does occur I'm in that much better shape to deal with this and to make sure that we are trying to take everything into consideration as opposed to just sort of flying by the seat of my pants, which was sort of the very beginning of the career as I'm just first starting to figure out what is it that I need to do now that my manager says, congratulations, you're now dealing with BC. Right. Okay, now with the experience, the education, the information that's out there, here's how I can enhance it and have it documented. So I'm not looking at a blank piece of paper if something happens. 
Granted, these playbooks and plans don't cover everything, but if they cover 75, 80% of what I need to worry about, I'm in that much of a better shape. And then I'll just tweak it as needed based on the uniqueness of that particular event. That's that's actually very true. I uh, first of all, let me thank you for saying uh, for what you said about about the podcast. Um, the podcast is not commercialized or monetized. It it is just my um, desire to give back to the profession I have so much passion for, and you know it takes time out of my work day, and as as it does yours for being here, and I'm grateful for that. But it means so much to me at a, on a personal and professional level that. Um, the episodes are providing nuggets of information and bringing up the uh, the one with Tom Fargione and, and cultural sensitivity it is a good one. We need to ensure cultural inclusivity in our emergency planning, in our crisis management planning, whether it's for a population or a workforce. But for the uh, for the reasons you just stated, we don't want people sitting around in a, in, a, in a command center or working during a crisis, and you know we're not able to feed them. Quick story, uh, and it's just, you know, it it ended up being fairly cute, and it wasn't during a crisis, but oh, many years ago, my team and I were contracted to develop. Uh, emergency plans for community uh, boards throughout a particular city somewhere in the in these United States and uh, th this city is is broken up by something like 36 community boards and these community boards are ingrained in the community and it was the mayor's desire for each of them to have an emergency operations plan so in order to develop these plans, uh, we engaged the community through the community boards and invited the public. And we uh, contracted with a uh, local food, I'll use the word food bank or, or food kitchen may be the better word. We wanted to give back to the community because these are kitchens that operate on a shoestring. And if we're able to have them prepare food for us, uh, for lunches, you know, for the, for the sessions, Okay, so I get a call one day, and it was on a Saturday, and um, I was not in this particular place. I was home, but my team was out and about doing their thing, and one of the team members was hysterical. I mean hysterical, that they had purchased um, the regular food products that we had always bought for the session that was being done in a uh, Jewish community in a synagogue. So there was ham and, and not non-kosher products and stuff like that. And I mean, I got to tell you, this person was so, so upset. And uh, the rabbi gets on the phone and he says, he says, he says, Mr. Kirk, he says, please, please tell your team member that it, it's okay. It's an honest accident. It's an honest mistake. We'll take care of it. We have another place where we can order from. We'll get some, some Danishes and stuff in here that are kosher for the community. Anyway, it was done, but... It's a it's it's a cute story that could have bigger implications during a crisis, and you have to be sure to um, that you have those um, those different dietary needs represented. You know the story that Tom talks about bringing halal and kosher food together is is a good one because they had an imam and a rabbi in the room and they had come to an agreement right because that's what we do we see yep. consensus as emergency managers that they were going to go with the kosher products the kosher was considered a higher standard of dietary cleanliness than the than halal 
uh, and the imam ha- had agreed with that. Great story. Thank you for bringing that up. I mean, and they were lucky that A, the rabbi was understanding, um, but I had also heard a story, and I can't remember if it was through one of yours or another podcast, where someone was working with like with some of the Native American tribes, and they were putting together a document, and they had included, I can't remember if it was an owl or some other animal, and they took offense to it because it's like what the, the symbolism of that animal meant. And it was sort of saying this is like could be a something, a symbol of, let's say, of harm or danger. And it's like what you're putting together is not that. So it's needing to understand who your audience is. And yes, there are going to be innocent mistakes. But if you can try and think it through ahead of time, you can try and minimize it so you can actually deal with the actual event and not, and I don't mean to minimize them, some of these ancillary issues so they don't take the forefront versus a hurricane just came through and now all our attention is on what's being served for lunch versus how am I going to help the people who've been flooded out of their homes. Exactly. And you and I are not going to know this. Uh, and not every emergency manager, uh, even if you are an emergency manager in, in, in a cultural situation and you reside in that situation, you're a member of the community. There's another community or another group that you may not have uh, information to properly respond to. So it's our responsibility to make sure that everybody has a seat at the table that can help us, uh, that can help us along with that. I remember... When I was with state emergency management, we were doing uh, planning. Flood, I think you said flood. We were doing flood planning for the communities around uh, Dutchess County, New York. And, you know, there are some extremely religious Jewish communities there. Yep. And we had representation from the communities. We had a rabbinical representation to help us along with, with stuff like that and um, making sure that we had stockpiled the, the appropriate food products. And if memory serves, there was actually one of the one of the. Uh, producers of uh, mills that uh, that kind of like civilian MREs, if you will, they're not called MREs, but they're so that are actually kosher and, and that's long shelf life and it could be stored. So we have to, we have to, we have to think of these things. Uh, crisis. Um, we're well into the story and boy, you have some, some great philosophies. Um, how is this, how, how are your philosophies applied and what kind of situations have you experienced? Well, we had mentioned 9-11, but numerous hurricanes, um, especially when I was with the larger banks where we had offices all over the country. Did you, um, did you Katrina, lose anybody? Katrina, Rita, Ike, Sandy here in New York. So, Did, did your organization lose anybody on 9-11? Um, not that I am, not directly, but some family members were lost during the event. Um, oh, I can't believe I'm just blanking on his name. He was like the number two in FDNY. Uh, Gancy, Chief Gancy. Yes. His, I worked with his brother. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So his brother and he was, the brother was in Dallas and when that occurred and he managed to get back to New York. Um, so he could be with the family and everything. But 
fortunately, we did not, to my knowledge, lose anybody on that day. But okay. we had a bunch of offices because we downtown, you had Chase Plaza and a few other locations which needed to be evacuated out and then find different places for the staff to work from because they had shut that whole area down for a while. And that's when some of our plans started to kick in as to say, what are we going to do? And some of the conversations I had were, okay, marketing, you're out of here. They're like, what do you mean? I said, no, we need your seats. We're important. It's like, yeah, but not as important as the wire room. And they were downtown. I need space for them. You're out of here. <laughs> and yeah. so the, the challenge there, as I recall, though, now you're dealing with a situation where there's competition because you're not the only business that needs to vacate their premises in the hazard zone, yep. which was which was pretty expansive. I believe at the time the hazard zone if we're talking about in the days and weeks post the, the actual attacks, we're talking about the hazard zone being the battery up to maybe Houston Street, mm -hmm. uh, right? And that, like, or Canal Street. That's an enormous piece of real estate of Southern Manhattan. So all these businesses are now in competition for for space. I remember my, my wife was actually a present during the attacks. She worked at the World Financial Center. So she was just across the street and her building was severely damaged when Tower One fell. Uh, so her, uh, fortunately, you know, she, she, she evacuated and, you know, her and her friends walked uptown and made it to uh, Penn Station and hung around until the train started running. Longer story. Anyway, um, she was uh, relocated to somewhere in New Jersey for months until they, they reoccupied uh, Lower Manhattan. Yeah. And so that was the issue was finding space for them. We converted a bunch of conference rooms into essentially offices. Um, fortunately, in some of the planning, because fortunately I was involved in some of it, I had made sure that we had a few extra landlines put into the conference room. So at least we were somewhat prepared, but we needed to run more lines so we could get the people up here and able to work and operate. Um, and what made that day even more interesting was the vast majority of my division senior management were in London for an offsite. Isn't it always that way? Yeah. And they're like, oh, just rent buses. And we're like, we can't. Oh, don't worry. Cost isn't an object. I'm like, no, no, no. You don't get it. The island is shut down. There's nothing coming in or out. And then finally they were like, okay, we're going to sit here. We'll be quiet. And to me and the managers who were the couple managers who were there, it's like, if you need anything from us, let us know. We'll get it approved, do what we have to. That's fine. But it was sort of like they realized that since they weren't here, boots on the ground, they didn't necessarily have a full understanding of what was going on. And they just sort of deferred to us to say, okay. We'll sit back, you make the decisions, and then we'll support you as best as we can, which was helpful because, yeah, they got the approvals for certain things, but they let us and they trusted us to make these decisions and do what needed to be done, which is also, which is critical to have that relationship with senior managers 
So when you are going to make your recommendations and everything, they're not necessarily second guessing you about everything. And it's like, look, you hired me for a reason. Let me do my job. I, I think that is so critical, the relationship component, especially with your uh, your upline, whether you're in, in the public sector, having a relationship with your political upline. You know, I was fortunate to work for a mayor uh, who was a, a, well not only supportive of emergency management, he founded the Office of Emergency Management as part of his administration. Um, he was in touch with public safety. He was in touch with uh, trends in terrorism globally. He had served as a United States uh, attorney for the Southern District of New York and was in touch with what was going on overseas, uh, bin Laden and stuff like that. So it, it is absolutely critical to have that uh, that relationship. Uh, so um, your your political or corporate, you know, senior leadership upline uh, can support you. I experienced that uh, in a number of different roles. In, in my public sector emergency management roles, as well as in the, the utility I worked in, where I had a solid relationship with the with the uh, C-suite, if you will. My boss was in the C-suite, and uh, and and of course, you know his his colleagues. So that's absolutely critical. Did you have um, just from a crisis management perspective? Did you establish uh, some uh, uh, some sort of a crisis management center or command center? And were you working to manage all these issues with your yeah. colleagues in the organization? Could you talk about that? Yeah. Um. Basically, yeah. We sort of I sort of commandeered an office at the time Good where I was tracking staff, so we knew where all the staff were and what that they were safe and what was going on with them. Um, so this working... is manual. This is 2001. This is not yeah. today where you have a lot of technology where you can track people. Uh, a uh, There are a number of technologies out there where you can track your staff. One called the balcony comes to mind, which is one where you can uh, tr track, you know, individuals and you know where they are. You can communicate with them as well today. Back then you're doing, you know, manual Tracking. Call trees. And yeah, I mean, like nowadays I would use like an OnSolve or Alert Media to send a message to their phone and they would check in with that. Here, I had printed out lists of all the staff, making sure that if they were in, they signed in. So we knew where they were, what was going on. If they didn't, checking with their managers saying, okay, is this person supposed to be in today or are they on vacation? Okay, they know they're supposed to be in. Let's reach out, try and figure out what's going on with them. Um, at one point, the building wanted us to evacuate. And I'm like, no, we're not leaving. Were you in the hazard zone or were you uptown? 33rd and 10th. Oh, so oh you we, did. Uh, okay, you did mention that earlier. Yeah, so sure we were outside the zone. And okay. one of the managers came to me and says, well, why don't you want to evacuate? I'm like, Everything is shut down. Where, where are we going to put the people? They're just going to stand out on the street. This way we have them in the office. We know where everyone is. They've got access to their computers, their phones, whatever. Is this the day of or in the weeks? Day of initially. Okay. Okay. And then since we were far enough up, even after, for the couple days after, we still were doing check-ins to make sure that everyone was okay, trying to have the managers reach out to their staff to make was, sure well, that they were fine. I, I just got to ask from a security perspective, was there a concern because of your proximity to Penn Station that that could have been a target? 
Was that one of the reasons they wanted to evacuate that? Because Penn Station, for those outside the New York area, is is a major rail hub, uh, both Long Island. It's it's Amtrak, Jersey Transit, Long Island Railroad, New York City Subway. It's an extraordinary and complex facility located on the west side of Manhattan, pretty close to where Sean is talking about. So it, just to paint that little picture. Yep. I'm not clearly, sure if that was their concern, um, because by the time they came to ask for that, we had the F-16 circling Manhattan. Okay. So I wasn't as concerned that that was going to be a target when every five minutes, two F-16s were flying by the window, circling around. So I knew if anything was getting into that area, theoretically, we were protected. Got it. But like I said, is putting everyone out on the street, then we would have lost control. And I wouldn't have known where anyone was. And all the trains were shut down, the buses, they were subways, right. nothing was getting in or out of the island. Right. My wife did, I, as I mentioned, my wife walked from the World Trade Center uh, to uh, Penn Station. So that's uh, 33rd and 8th. 34th and 8th 7th uh that's that's a pretty big walk i mean yeah you know yeah it's it's a good healthy walk they stopped along the way grabbed some food but uh trains didn't start running until like five o'clock and there was a, a, a heav heavily uh armed presence on the trains law enforcement both uh mta police New York State Police, probably other law enforcement agencies that, that yep. came to to insist, but the trains, which typically hold about fifteen hundred people, were extraordinarily packed. They 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 overwhelmed the trains, standing room only situation. Anyway, it's important uh, to understand that picture because you're talking about yet you know a crisis within a crisis, and and your your leadership in managing, coordinating, cooperating, collaborating with the, with the building management. Uh, was 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 absolutely critical. Before we go into into summary, um, you had uh, you start talking about hurricanes. Any major hurricane nuggets? Um, yeah, and well, Katrina was a major one that we dealt with in Sandy. I mean, the key thing with so, so Katrina is that Katrina is down in the Gulf. What, yeah, what's your impact? We had an office in New Orleans. Okay, there you go. So the office was basically taken out. So the staff wound up, and this was the advantage of working for a major company like J.P. Morgan Chase at the time. I had staff who went to Atlanta, to Dallas, Baton Rouge. So fortunately, and Atlanta, yeah, Atlanta. So fortunately, because Chase had so many locations and I had made relationships with people in facilities, I was able to reach out to them and find seating for them in each of these cities. They could get, in some cases, we had a corporate trust location, so I could get them in there. But in a couple spots, we didn't have a division, and like an office in my division. So I was able to work with facilities, and they were like, okay, this department has an, an office in this location of Atlanta. We've made arrangements. So I was able to get my people into locations where they could continue to operate and work, um, which helped them somewhat with something to do because they were out for a while. Okay, so um, you're managing this crisis from your command center in New York, it sounds like. Yep, 
and you have a team around you and now you're relocating staff from the new Orleans location uh, who probably have personal issues to take care of. Are their homes destroyed? Are their, are their families? Okay. And you're now relocating people to sub cities along the Southern tier. I think you mentioned Dallas, uh, Atlanta, Atlanta, Baton Rouge, they were going to stay with family. And so they, that's where they chose to go. So then I was working with them to make sure that they would have a place where they could continue to work from once they got there and they got settled. And then the firm HR through human resources was seeing what type of support we could provide to them while they were going through this. But I was making sure that good, you ready to go fine. And some that's like, I want to work because it's something to do and to keep busy made sure that they had that opportunity and make sure that whatever support they needed, they were able to get, whether it was for me, from HR, from another office, because they couldn't handle a closing for whatever reason, someone else would be able to step in and deal with that for them. And I'm, a, I'm going to make an assumption here. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is crisis management at its best. Mm -hmm. You probably did not have a plan for this. Well, you may have had a, a, a plan for, for the facility located in New Orleans, knowing it's a hurricane plan. Had you considered and accounted for in your planning the potential relocation of staff throughout the uh, throughout the South, throughout those southern no. cities? Right. You didn't because you you can't foresee everything, but you have to be prepared for everything. Yep. And that's where and I started saying, okay, based on these things, so these were like little notes that I would add to say, okay, we need to start considering how we're going to deal with this type of an event. Um, where do I need to push back on senior management and to say, no, we need to take this into consideration. Yeah. Hopefully we never have to worry about it, but if we do, these are some other things we need to consider and how are we going to deal with it? Um, at least high level, let's put some thought around this. So it's not, okay, this has now happened and this is the first time anybody is saying, huh, what should we do? But I was fortunate because I had dealt with a lot of the different divisions within the bank so I had the relationship. So I knew who to call. And since I had a good relationship with them, they worked with me, no questions asked. And I didn't have to waste time to first saying, okay, in facilities, in the real estate group, who should I be calling? And then have to make 27 phone calls before I get put in touch with the right person. I knew exactly who to call and said, Steve, I need somebody in Atlanta, Baton Rouge, and Dallas. What can you find for me? And they're like, okay, I'll get back to you in a little bit. And they said, I've arranged for it. This is the manager in each of these locations. Just have the person when they're ready, just show up, ask for them, and they're ready to go for you. You are talking about collaboration and trust, and you have brought that up a number of times during during this episode. Uh, Kelly McKinney and I talk, uh, spoke about uh, uh, how that works and where 
the one thing you don't need when you are dealing with crisis is the thousand questions. Well, do you really need it? Is there another way to do it? Why do I have to be involved in this? Uh, is it approved by somebody? You are a master collaborator, my friend, and you, what it sounds like you have done is developed and continue to do that in your current roles. You you continue to develop a collaboration uh, of leadership and you, you develop that trust. So, man, that is so core to who we are and what we do. And thank you again for bringing up Rolodex management. If anybody wants to know what that is, just message me or Sean on LinkedIn. What you are talking about is having that uh, that trust. So when you pick up the phone, uh, first of all, it's not the first time you've interacted with somebody, right? My yep. my motto for decades has been the worst place to hand out a business card is at a command post or in an EOC. And you know these people, and they pick up the phone and say, Sean needs this, let's get it done. And that's the way it's supposed to work. I really, I really appreciate your style and philosophy. Yeah. And this way, by having that relationship, they know if I call them, if I say it's an emergency, they know it's an emergency. I'm not calling them for every request saying this is an emergency. It's like, no, this, if you get it to me next week, yeah, that's fine. Um, versus no, this is what's going on. This is critical. It doesn't become the boy who cried wolf. It's you like know, they know in, if I'm saying it, yeah. it is. I've been in situations where I said, I've, I've told my leadership, I will never call you on your cell phone unless it's an emergency. I will text you, you know, hey, you know, routine questions or, you know, can you give me a call when you get a chance, that kind of thing. And yet, invariably, it always happens. Something's going down. I pick up the phone and then I get a text message back. Hey, I'm busy. Can I call you back? I've already set the stage for you. I've set the tone. I'm not going to bug you on your cell phone. I will call you if needed. And and this situation, there's a situation I'm thinking about where there was a s significant event unfolding in my area of responsibility, uh, in our organization's area of responsibility. And, and, and I got that message back and I start chuckling. And of course, I said, no, step. I've had to say a few times, step out of the room and call me right now. Uh, I've I've had a few situations with that. Um, one was a, a significant incident uh, with with injured workforce, and, and I think that you know people need to understand that uh, when the emergency manager calls you, take the call because the emergency manager, especially Sean and Steve, we're not calling you unless we mean it. We'll text you otherwise or email you. Exactly. If I'm calling for certain things, especially. If it's off hours, then something is wrong because if I'm calling you off hours, yeah, there's yeah. a problem. Yeah, yeah. We need is, you now. Yeah, your stuff's on fire or, or, or your stuff is flooded, you know, you or or your you know, your people can't get in at the, the you know the, the next day. You know, when I was an OEM we dealt with it you know, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, the old Yankee Stadium in the night, you know, late nineties. There, there's a rail, a major railroad underneath Yankee Stadium, Metro North Railroad. Yep. So, so I'm the duty officer. I get a call like at two a.m. and they say we have it. We have a derailment under under Yankee Stadium. It's a freight train. I'm like, okay, what's well, a freight train? So no injuries. Is there any hazmat involved? No hazmat involved. It's dry freight. I'm like, okay, and it it, it hit me right away six o'clock rush hour starts so now i only got four hours to get those tracks cleared 
So I respond out to the scene and, uh, you know, working with Metro North, FDNY, NYPD, you know, all the appropriate agencies, we end up, we end up getting it done and getting it cleared. But yeah, those, those, those obstacles have to, have to be cleared. I'm going to start looking at uh, uh, s some notes because this was absolutely a, a great discussion. You've been in the business a long time. You have great experience, 25 plus years, and you continue to serve, um, I'll make mention to uh, a monthly uh, chat that you were involved in. Mm -hmm. uh, Daniela McCoy, who is uh, formerly of New York City Office of Emergency Management and is currently an academic in the business continuity space based out in, I think it's uh, Dubai. Yeah. Uh, she's teaching in Dubai. She runs a, a monthly uh, hour. It's a one hour. It's, I think it's expanded to an hour and 15 minutes chat called uh, Continuity and Coffee Chat. And uh, I would I would encourage anybody that's interested in joining this, especially those that are in the corporate crisis uh, management and business continuity space, resiliency space, to reach out to Daniela McCoy or, or Sean or I could, could get you the information. Uh, it's grown from about five people to fifty, and when I say there are people from all over the globe that dial into this thing, uh, that that's literal. We have people now, and it's LinkedIn based. Meaning it's, you know, the invitations go out and, and the marketing for this thing go out on LinkedIn, the promotions. So we have people coming in from the UK, from Asia, from different different parts of the world. So that, that's how Sean and I sort of connected um, and then realized that we had some some common ground, literally uh, going back. Uh, and it meets that. the first Thursday of the month. 8.30 New York time Eight, right. or 8.15 it'll start. Um and I think she was looking at possibly adding a second meeting just because how it's been growing. Um, and you've got all these different industries, which is good because you get a different point of view and perspective on dealing with certain events. And it's sort of like, OK, how does this potentially impact me? Ah, it doesn't that point of view or, you know what, this is something I should be considering and trying to figure out how to incorporate it because, yeah, the guy who's speaking works for a chemical company. I'm a bank. Well, you know what? There is still certain overlap between the two that we do need to take into consideration. And those conversations give you that additional perspective and certain other things that you may want to think about as to say, how can I incorporate this into my plans, my playbooks, my thought process. Yeah, we we do speak about um, situations. The uh, the uh, conflict between Israel and Gaza has come up, and from from the perspective of what its impact is on organizations, on your organization, mm -hmm. those that are members of this group. So I would encourage those interested in being on this on this chat. It's informative. And it's Daniela's um, opportunity to give back, sort of like we view this podcast. The transition from disaster recovery to business continuity to crisis management, that continuum that you spoke about is very common. I've seen it in, in different organizations. Uh, people realized in and around 9-11 that just recovering data was not enough, that there's other parts of the organization that need to be cared for from a crisis management continuity perspective, principally the workforce. And then and then there's the, the workspace and I, I know uh, there was sort of a standing philosophy post 9-11. Let's get facilities built 
overnight almost, if you will, hot sites, if yep. you will, for uh, about 10, 10 uh, area codes out. That was kind of like a, just a, a wing, a, a standard that we, you know, we were winging. Of course, we needed 10, 10 area codes out from uh, from uh, from New York. How many organizations had their data centers and backup centers right there in Manhattan? Well, that's not a good philosophy. But, well, some, yeah, some of them had them was like across the street from each other. Right. And it's like they realized, yeah, no, this isn't going to work. We need to make sure that, okay, at the very least, they're on different electrical grids that we've got based on certain types of events, both of them are not going to be impacted in the same event. Granted, like you had the power outage that took out the entire East Coast, you couldn't have necessarily planned for that, but you wanna make sure that, okay, if I've got something in the city, my backup is either maybe upstate New York or downstate Jersey, but far enough away where odds are the event that's impacting that location is not going to necessarily be hitting everything around me. So if my production's in Brooklyn, I don't want my backup in Queens. I need them a little further apart. Well, yeah. I mean, I've been in situations uh, where we've had the EOC stood up because two boroughs were out of power. You know, we we had a situation in, in, uh, in New York where I think it was a heat wave we lost power in all of North Manhattan, all of the South Bronx, and the entire borough of Queens. Now that's catastrophic. It's a catastrophic power outage. Uh, we had uh, the vice president was Al Gore at the time, sitting on Air, uh, Air Force Two, just sitting there, you know, twiddling his thumbs at LaGuardia. And uh, we actually got a request to make sure that the electric utility prioritized the airports so the vice president could leave. And we spoke with Con Ed and that was a mission that was not going to be accepted because you could not prioritize an, an elected official over, you know, hospitals and stuff like that. I mean, you sure from a national security perspective, you could probably make that argument, but there's other ways to protect, uh, to protect the vice president, the contingency planning exchange. Um, is it still around? No, we had that got shut down. A number of years ago, um, it was just getting part difficult to maintain um, because we were all volunteers. So finding locations that would host us, trying to come up with different topics and finding the people to speak. So it wound up just shutting down. So I, I am a member of the Association of Continuity Professionals as you probably are, and I am in the uh, ACP South Florida. Well, it's the mid-Florida chapter, and we are doing uh, a breakaway chapter uh, and and reforming South Florida chapter. Uh, And we do what you're what you are discussing. Uh, we have speakers monthly. We have collaboration events. In fact, the group right now is at uh, Fort Lauderdale uh, Airport getting a tour of the Emergency Operations Center. And that's an example of, uh, of, of what of what this group does. It's very similar to CPE. Mm-hmm. And it's it's done mostly virtually now. Uh, speakers have uh, in fact, my my engagement with this organization is having been a speaker when I was in Colorado. So uh, I, I knew the uh, director and he he asked me if I, if I do a presentation. I did that. I ended up doing a couple. And I also spoke for the Tennessee Valley chapter uh, with the, uh, last May with the group. But it, 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 my point is 
collaboration and collaborative efforts like this are are just you know you you can't put a price on them when i was in colorado the city county it was a joint emergency management a regional operation had a, an emergency management collaborative that met uh, bi-monthly at different locations so the you know the it would be in the eoc one month and then it would be up at university of colorado the next month or one of the military bases i would host it at the utility there was about 75 emergency managers from the Colorado Springs area that would come together, share situational awareness, share best practices, and, and speak about how we can help each other. And that's exactly what you're talking about, and you mentioned a few times over the course of this episode. So when I had to pick up the phone and call the emergency manager at um, Cheyenne Mountain Air Force Station, right, which is commonly known as NORAD, which that's only part of the story there now. Yeah. Uh, but we knew each other because we had been at these meetings together uh they gave my team and i a tour of the uh unclassified areas of the facility and it was just fascinating but if there was something going down and cheyenne mountain was subject to wildfires and windstorms and stuff you know they knew who to call me as the electric utility and i knew who to call if i needed information so i would really encourage that any of the any collaborative effort where emergency managers can speak Daniela's coffee chat uh, podcasts uh, ACP uh, uh, different organizations I'm not talking about conferences with speakers that that's important I'm talking about where people sit around the room and and share in the weeds information and the conferences can be helpful um, yes I'll do different events sometimes I'll which are outside of my scope to some extent, because for like cybersecurity, which while technically I'm not responsible for, if it goes down and there's a failure, then I may have to get involved. But this way I can get some general information. So when I am talking with InfoSec, I sort of know some of the questions to ask. And by getting this additional knowledge and information, it does put you in a better position. So if you are at the table, you can speak intelligently. And like I said, you know the right questions to ask because what I've told people that a key part of business continuity is knowing the questions to ask the business because they're the ones who are going to come up with the specific procedures and plans because it's their business. But you need to know what questions to ask to get them to think about it. That's classic. That is absolutely fantastic. Meaning you need to know the business. I needed to know how the fire department operates as a public sector emergency manager. And I learned how the fire department operates. I ultimately ended up being a member of the fire department when EMS and fire department were merged in New York three of my days with New York City OEM, uh, and I was a, a chief officer. Uh, but I needed to know how the fireside worked. I needed to understand the difference between an engine and a truck, a rescue and a squad, and how fire ground operations worked, be, and hazmat, and, and really everything, and police operations, and how the difference between patrol and investigations and emergency service and aviation. And, and all the, I'll just use, I'll stop there because there are 44 city agencies I had to really understand. But th that's, that, that's absolutely critical so you need to know the the right questions to ask you spoke about assumption management and we also spoke about playbooks um, absolutely 
critical well, assumption management uh really asking the right questions to get an understanding that the assumptions that leaders are making might not actually be the way to execute something uh that's uh that's going on and and that people that they assume people will do uh rolodex management came up a few times and uh robust what if planning and i'm kind of going to leave it there uh um Lori hodges uh, was on the show last week. Her episode will appear soon. She is emergency management director in Larimer County, Colorado, the northernmost county in Colorado. And uh, she speaks, uh, she has extensive wildfire experience, and she speaks about chaos management as applied to emergency management. And one of the things that she has her team do during crises uh, is is uh, do a constant evolution of what-if management. And, and you know, and... Um, there are some what if models actually out there. There's a there's a five what if model that I've operated under in the past, and that's sort of how you can you could even do that very quickly for critical thinking. But for critical planning, what if this happens? What if that happens? Well, if that happens, what if this happens? Um, she has her team doing that as part of the the planning process, the planning, if you will. And I, if you were talking about ICS, which we really haven't brought up in this episode, is part of the planning process. So. That's really good. Uh, Sean, wow, that was a great episode. And, you know, you're on your game, and I really appreciate your knowledge, uh, your contribution. And, you know, it also sounds like you're pretty good at what you do as a one-man band. You know, I met a number of crisis managers along the way in the private sector that uh, are, are single point of contact, single point of execution for business continuity and crisis management, even for global organizations. And I think that I think that's challenging, and uh, I I applaud you for being able to do it. Final thoughts for the folks? Um, just continue to try and keep learning about it, and make those contacts because that is what you're going to need during the event. Um, the knowledge will help make your decisions and inform them, um, but also to understand you don't know everything. Things are going to change. You may have thought you've made a decision X and then, okay, an hour later, I have new information Y. you can't be married to your earlier decision. You have to be able to pivot at a moment's notice. And that's absolutely critical. Thank you so much, Sean. I want to thank Sean for being uh, on the podcast, five minutes to chaos and for sharing his career experience, crisis management and business continuity philosophies. Five Minutes to Chaos drops Thursdays. Please follow us or like like us on your favorite platform and set it to alert so you know when an episode drops. I welcome your comments or questions, which can be submitted in the comments area of the show or directed to me on LinkedIn. Until next time, embrace the chaos. That brings us to the end of this episode of Five Minutes to Chaos. We hope you enjoyed exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way. Remember, confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided. It is a central crisis management role 
that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience. By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos. Thank you.